0: Welcome back. This is Chapter 1, Session 2, Death Before Dishonor. Enjoy. Even with the trauma of physical punishment as an ever-looming threat, I can honestly say that I had a happy childhood under my grandparents' care. I knew they did their best for me, and I will always love and cherish them for that care. Because everyone I knew was experiencing the same kind of physical punishment for any of their misdeeds, mine did not seem especially significant. We, all the children I knew, were all under the same fear of beatings for any measure of disobedience. It was the norm, I did not know that all parents did not resort to such means of punishment until I came to the United States. In sixth grade, I was recanting the story of one of my many instances of severe beating in Nigeria while on a school bus filled with my middle school classmates. I had them eating out of my hands, completely enthralled by my stories. By the next school day, I was ushered into the guidance counselor's office who wanted to know all about any abuse happening at home. The light bulb went off immediately and I told her that my stories were of my upbringing in Nigeria, not my current reality at home with my parents. I would later learn that any such attempts to instill your children with the knee quaking fear of authority that we knew as part of our childhood would end them in the custody of the Department of Health and Human Services and possibly foster care. I was under the same roof with both my parents for the first time in my life. I was not about to lose them over some sensationalized stories of my 10-year-old imagination. At 17, I experienced a new beginning as I went away to college. After seven years of living in America under my parents' care, it was time to test out my long-held belief system. Everything I knew was challenged. And everything I claimed to be was put to the test. My love for Christ, a passion I wholeheartedly proclaimed just a year earlier when I rededicated my life at the age of 16, began to dissipate rapidly. At home I was as close to the perfect daughter as I could get. I did well in school, graduated high school with honors. I never went out on the weekends. I had no friends outside of my youth group. The two friends I kept close during the school year were the only other escaped. I went to Bible study with my mom every Wednesday and prayer meetings on Fridays. When I was not in church, I was either at tutoring through the upper bound program or at karate class at the Hayes Taylor YMCA. Church gave me my primary peer group from the age of 13. Here was a group of other Nigerians who could relate to everything I had to gripe about. From my overly strict parents, to the complexity of trying to fit in at a school among classmates who still make monkey noises at you or ask you if you walked around naked. I never had to explain myself to my fellow immigrants. They just got it. Most of our parents were part of the Odudua Unity Club or the Nigerian Association of Greensboro. We saw each other literally every weekend at one party or the other and then we fellowship together on Sundays. I had a solid village of friends outside of school. In fact, when I graduated high school, despite having gone to my new school for two years with the same friends, I had no intention of keeping up with anyone from my high school. The only group of friends that mattered to me were my Nigerian play cousins. They were the one who had been in the trenches with me since I came to the country. They were the people who had been attending my birthday parties from the age of 11. They were the ones who knew which boy I wanted to kiss at our next game of truth or dare. They were the ones who came with me to the choir the Fire conference where I rededicated my life to Christ. And they were the ones who knew all about my first serious relationship as a high school senior. They were my village. My friends were everything to me. Friends who could pronounce my name friends who knew how to greet my parents, and friends who had my family's trust. These were not some school friends. These were my fellow Nigerians who colored my childhood and kept me from being the, quote, African girl, unquote, because we were all Africans. Most of our parents had been friends longer than we had been alive. We had free access to each other, and we spent most of our weekends begging our parents to spend the night with one another. We were all we had for socialization because friendships with non-Nigerians was harder due to our parents' mistrust of anyone who they did not know. Or friendships with Americans was impossible because of their mean-spirited ignorance and the way they treated Africa as if it was one big undeveloped bush. Their questions about our lives as Nigerians were always framed in the most demeaning way possible. Most of my friends and I had at least one occasion of physically fighting a classmate because their insults about us being African booty scratchers became too much to be ignored. Being surrounded by other Nigerian preteens made my transition from Nigerian to Nigerian American so much smoother. Without the village cultivated for me by my parents, I would have had no escape from the relentless bullying at school. My weekends were filled with birthday parties, soccer matches, and family celebrations with fellow Nigerians, and closely chaperoned by my parents and their friends. I remember being out of the house every weekend for what felt like several years. We always had something to do or celebrate, and I loved it. Suffice it to say that the first seven years after coming to America, I had no life outside of my parents' direct supervision. College was about to change everything. When I arrived on the campus of UNC Charlotte, it seemed to be the place where anything was possible and my whole life could change. The entire campus seemed filled with possibility. I could not predict who among my classmates or professors would change my life in the best way possible. I was dreaming of a future that included lifelong friendships forged in the fire of our undergraduate experiences, romantic flings, and the professional contacts that would lead me to my dream job as a six-figure earning corporate attorney at a top-tier law firm. The future looked wide open, and I was ready to experience it all. Every day for the first few weeks of classes felt like the day my life could change. I was meeting so many new people from all over the world. In college, I met fellow students who were headed for state and national political seats, children of top world leaders and executives, and even someone that went to high school with the newest American Idol. I was living my best life. It felt like I was worlds away from my sleepy little existence in Greensboro. If it were left up to me, I would have never moved out of Charlotte. Not only did the city house the school I loved most, the life I lived both on campus and off made me feel like I was living my own version of Sex in the City, with fabulous outfits, apple martinis, and an endless possibility of romantic prospects. Within weeks of freshman orientation, I was caught up in a life that largely revolved around alcohol, But amid it, I excelled academically. The fear of being branded a failure and a disappointment by fellow Nigerians who had just celebrated my graduation was enough to keep me studying diligently. I would get up from my 8 a.m. classes even after a night of heavy partying and drinking. My first semester of college was an academic triumph and a spiritual disaster. For my 17 years at the time, my village had drilled it into me that my job was to do well in school. No one expected me to work until after college, but they fully expected me to land at the top of my class. Failure was not an option. The pressure to succeed academically was immensely beneficial to me. It kept my nose to the grindstone And I got special joy out of seeing A's on my college transcripts. What I was not prepared for was the transition from being under my parents' thumb to becoming my own woman and being solely responsible for the day-to-day decisions I made about my health, my friendships, my relationships, and my future. I did not realize I was ill-equipped for that level of freedom until my freedom led me to spiritual bondage. For the first time in my life, my primary social group was not the same Christian Nigerians who had been with me all my life. There was no joint sense of familial obligations that tied us together. We did not have parents who held us to extraordinarily high expectations. There were just some things that Nigerian young people did not do and live to tell about it. Partying wildly and flunking out of school because of it was at the top of that list. Other such banned activities not to be named among Nigerian youth in the church included associating with anyone who did not operate by your same code of ethics. Show me your friends and I will show you who you are. Said every Nigerian parent ever since the beginning of time. Fraternizing with people who were not college educated by choice rather than circumstances and who operated on the outskirts of the law would have been deeply frowned upon by my parents and elders. So, going to college and meeting people who routinely broke the law as a way of life was exciting and deeply intriguing for me. They were so different from my friends from youth group. College was as basic an expectation for me and my fellow immigrants, as high school is for every teenager in America. Of course you were going to college. What was the alternative? Work? Who was gonna hire you without an education? We all had to go to college. To be between the age of 17 and 25 and not in school or graduated with an advanced degree was to be judged. The question, what are you doing with your life, will be the unspoken inquiry from every adult in your life. To meet my non-Nigerian peers through college and realize that they did not hold the same heavy weight of expectations that had been handed down through my lineage was absolutely fascinating. You must excel. You must graduate with honors. You must get your master's. You must get your PhD. Anything less than excellence is unacceptable. I had friends who flunked out and went back home to live with their parents. In my household, that would have been a suicide mission. I remember going to a house party with one of my college friends who lived in Denver, North Carolina. Who knew North Carolina had a Denver? I didn't. The party was a gathering of his friends and acquaintances from high school and middle school. Most of them still lived and worked in town, and those in college were the minority. For this group, college was not an expectation. No one looked down on you if you chose something besides higher education as your path forward. Once again, an alien concept to most Nigerians. I was an adult before I heard of a Nigerian young person pursuing an alternate path after college and by alternate path I mean a decision that does not include more school another degree or a career that would pay for you to get more degrees back when my husband and I were just family friends one of his younger brothers joined the military after college and our community lost our collective minds you would have thought he joined a circus We could not believe it. Choosing a military career when your family had no military background was such a foreign concept and everyone had an opinion. Those of us who had access to him tried to convince him otherwise. Go get your master's degree was probably the most recommended plan of action. Thanks to his bravery in forging his own path, I can successfully boast of other college educated young adults in my peer group and younger who have now chosen a military career and are doing well. While I was in school, no one back home could verify the condition of my heart as easily as they could witness the Chancellor's Awards and academic accolades. There were no visible signs to testify to the state of my morality or my walk with Jesus. As I fed my soul with all manners of filth during freshman year, I was primed for a life that loved worldliness and was ambivalent to the things of God. I had a taste for bright lights, loud music, and strong drinks. And I did my utmost to keep the party going, even after I came home for the summer. I was bound to a life that deadened my spirit and fed my lusts. My summers at home with my parents were tumultuous at best. Having spent the last nine months of the year living fast and loose in college, it was hard to come back home and pretend to be the same unexposed girl who left for school. Alcohol was still a favorite, but at home I had to hide my drinking. The friends I once partied with were ready for summer fun in the sun, but now I had a curfew. Friends who had unlimited access to me at school now had to be kept hidden away from my parents. In the summer, I started expanding my social circle. Most of my fellow Nigerians were still as sheltered as I had been before going off to college. The potential to be judged if I got too wild and crazy was high. I began to find friends whose code of ethics matched my changing definition of what constituted a good time. During the summers I made friends at my summer job working at a local gas station. My co-workers typically held their job full-time rather than seasonally like me. Their lives were built around the income that barely sustained me through the summers. Most of them had college aspirations at one point, but the impossibility of paying tuition on the minimum wages we earned stopped them in their tracks. Many of them were older than me and had put away their higher education dreams for the time being. When we hung out, I just tried to live in the moment forgetting about the fact that these were not the friends my parents would have chosen for me. They were fun. That was all that mattered. Some of them were already single parents of young children, while others were looking to get married and settle down. But they postponed the notion of marital stability until they had, quote, a better job. I got a rare glimpse into the trap that poverty wages sets for so many unassuming young people in our community. When you do not have the privilege of parental support, you come to America to get a better education, only to realize that it costs a serious amount of money. Now imagine being new to the country with no support system and trying to pay tuition out of pocket. You work to cover your tuition only to realize you can never afford your education while also keeping a roof over your head. So you work harder. You try to cover your living expenses as well as your education, but your wages remain the same while everything else gets more expensive. Before you know it, it has been years and you are still in the same position as when you first began your journey towards higher education and still too many years away from completing your degree. You can't get a better job because the job you have is the only one that will hire you without an education. And thus the rat race is set up so that bright-eyed 20-year-old men and women grow into their 30s and 40s earning the same wages as high school graduates working a summer job. Imagine trying to support multiple households in America and in your homeland on the wages that amount to a high school student's play money. Money for non-essentials and wants rather than income that is needed to feed and sustain your family. Working with grown men and women whose futures were already decided for them made me that much more determined to forge a path of success through higher education. I had parents who were willing to support me for as long as it took for me to earn my degree. And I intended to make them proud of my academic successes. In my college years, I flirted with disaster and courted catastrophes. Between drinking so heavily that I would forget whole blocks of time. As an entire night often drew a blank in my memory. What happened after we left our apartment? How did I get back home? To forming friendships with men who were only looking for an opportunity to take advantage of my alcohol-induced blackouts. To practically jeopardizing my academic career and life by getting into vehicles with people I barely knew. Who unbeknownst to me were carrying contraband that could have seriously upended my life and landed me in the criminal justice system. I played fast and loose with my life and my future. When I think too hard about it, it is a miracle that I made it out of college alive and without injury, at least not the visible kind. College brought me many guy friends who were always potential boyfriends, but for one hindrance or another. College also brought me genuine sisterhoods with friends I still hold today. I graduated with high honors but I also graduated with many more demons than when I first went in. I added another assault to my list of traumas and packed it along with my college textbooks, never to see the light of day again. When I went to law school, I began again as an adult who was old enough to do anything that my wild imagination could dream up. For a moment, I attempted to keep some level of decorum. We were professional students after all. Did I really want my new classmates to pen me as the party girl of our law school? Not particularly. So I did my partying away from school. I was still a diligent student. I never missed class. I met regularly with my study group for four hour stretches of reviewing our class notes, outlining and discussing legal concepts and theories. On my own, I studied laboriously four hours at a time, doing my best to stay on top of the voluminous reading for each class. Once my studying was done, the remainder of my time was for finding a club or a house party for the weekend. My friends and I would drive anywhere between Raleigh and Charlotte looking for a good time, and we found plenty. Along with it, a handful of different men who thought I was amusing enough to keep around, but none who valued me. Although I was not ready for a physical relationship, I was looking for love and was willing to lower or abolish my standards to find it. My dream man was elusive at best. I wanted a fresh start. Someone who would not impose their unspoken expectations of who I was supposed to be based on my family, my culture, or my background. I wanted someone who would treat me as a blank slate and let our developing relationship be the sole basis from which they formed their opinions about me. Not someone who knew me as so-and-so's daughter and such-and-such's sister, friend, cousin. Every relationship with someone who knew me casually before we dated felt too restricted. I felt bound to their idea of me and severely limited in being my true self. Nothing and no one worked out. I needed a new beginning. Every new year, new relationship or new adventure for me held the promise of starting over. Each new year started off in church praising God for the blessings of seeing another year. It was a time to reflect on the loved ones who may not have made it into the new year with us because of unexpected death and loss. It was a time to start afresh with God and in all aspects of my life. As I grew into my twenties and out of my parents' direct supervision, I would start the new year in church and then immediately go to party with my friends. My promises of a new dedication to the things of God did not last beyond the first hour of the new year. A new relationship gave me the same feelings of optimism as New Year's Eve. It was a brand new chance at love that would last a lifetime instead of just a moment. It was a chance to build with someone who would not beat me over the head with the baggage I already came with. One of the most thrilling new relationships I entered was with someone from my childhood. It happened quite by accident. We knew one another for years, but I had never seen him in a romantic sense. But one day he showed interest and a relationship blossomed. Before this romance, I had only been in one serious relationship. Even after we broke up, Those who knew us individually would not stop linking us together romantically. It was frustrating. I was desperate to be my own woman, and the new relationship that came out of nowhere was my opportunity to finally sever the link from my previous romance. I fell headlong into romance that traveled at breakneck speed within a few months. So much so that when the relationship ended abruptly, I felt like my world imploded. Ten months after our breakup, I was still struggling to move on. I mourned the loss of my new beginning more than anything else. This was the romance that should have changed my life, and it ended just like every other romance before it. It never occurred to me that God would be my new beginning. Twice a year, I was at conferences for fellow young Christians. I had become familiar with the presence of God. Although the worship was intoxicating, the messages convicting, and my tears plenty, the change did not last. No more than two weeks after each conference, I would be back to my old patterns. It felt like God was not big enough to change me. Little did I know that I had not experienced genuine repentance at these conferences. Yes, God's presence was there, tangible enough to expose the filthiness of my own lifestyle as compared to the holiness of his presence. But I was experiencing emotionalism rather than giving way to true conversion. I thought because I had a good cry and was genuinely sorry about my past misdeeds, the emotions of regret would be enough to fuel a new life when I returned home. Unfortunately, emotionalism is a poor replacement for a heart that is genuinely submitted to Christ and the word of God. I did not realize how badly I needed to begin again in my life until I took stock of my life. By the time I was 26, I was carrying the weight of abuse from several sources. I was carrying the weight of poverty and lack that invaded my mindset and poisoned every opportunity that was presented to me. I was carrying the weight of a broken sense of self since my first abuse happened at the age of 11, long before I had a good grasp on who I was or who I was intended to be. The abuse was most dramatic because it stripped me of my ability to be candid with my family. There was no way to tell them the truth without changing how they viewed me, and that was not a risk I was willing to take on. I envied anyone who had truly lived a sheltered life and had been protected from the weight that was dragging me down in all of my personal relationships, both with my family and my friends and my romantic prospects. Women who did not have my stories of being assaulted, who were not damaged goods, who were still waiting on their first relationship, who seemed like the shiny prize that any man would want. I was not them. I had to settle for whoever would have me. He no longer had to be anything on my list. He just had to be good looking and good enough. No truly good man would want me anyway. The men I could attract must be flawed in some way for us to have anything in common. So went my thinking, and with that dangerous mindset, I pigeonholed myself and effectively cut off my own ability to cultivate and enjoy thriving and functional romantic relationships. The future of my love life was written in the cards. There was nothing I could do about it. As I took further inventory of myself, I realized I was also living and reliving the trauma of sudden lack. I grew up in a family of means. My dad lived in the United States long before I was born. He could get me the latest of any and everything my heart desired. Although we lived below our means, just knowing that I had a father who had the means and the desire to provide for me was enough to give me unshakable confidence. When I lived with my grandparents, my grandfather was one of the wealthiest men in our city and state. He has several multi-billion earning businesses and was generous with all his children and grandchildren. Shortly after we moved to the United States my father was awarded the largest contract in his field as a person of color in our state's history. We built and moved into our dream home. I went to college and for the most part life was good. After college my parents confided in me that my father no longer had the contract that had fed us for so many years and our family was surviving on my mom's meager wages. My father struggled with the depression of losing it all and having to come back from nothing. He had poured 30 years of experience and sweat into the the endeavors that went belly up. For my own part, I struggled with the fear of not having. Immediately, my life's goal was singular, never to lack again. The whole goal of law school became graduate and earn six figures. I did not realize my trauma was driving my ambition. I mislabeled my fear of lack as being focused. Although I was naturally introspective, there were several areas of my life that were too raw to touch. For over a decade, I forgot about my first assault, erasing it from my memory and being genuinely baffled by my triggered response to certain people, places, and touch. While in law school, I finally decided that the good girl facade was a joke. It was time to be my real self. I went from being in three serious relationships in six years to more than a dozen casual flings in one year. I dated friends of my friends, their cute older brothers, a church acquaintance who turned out to be an ex-boyfriend of one of my childhood best friends. FYI, there is no degree of separation among Nigerians. It is safest to assume that everybody knows everybody. Once again, I was playing fast and loose with my life. I was no longer the good girl I strived to be. It was time to embrace my identity as a party girl. The only hiccup in my plan was that in my second semester of law school, God showed up on campus. This has been Chapter 1, Session 2 of the Memoirs podcast, Death Before Dishonor. We will see you next week for Session 3. Have a great week.